It takes usually decades to, for example, develop diabetes. And yet, when you put the right fuel in your body, the changes start happening over a course of a few days. It's just astonishing. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Provo, Utah, Waimea, Hawaii, and West Bengal, India. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 57 of season 5, number 356 overall. And it also happens to be a double episode. There are two great guests on tap today. First, we are going to raise your health IQ with Dr. Hanna Kaliova, and then we're going to make you laugh with Mike Kaplan. A lot of people know him as the vegan comedian, and he has a great podcast out called Broccoli and Ice Cream. <laughs> and you may have also seen him on The Tonight Show or maybe David Letterman or maybe you caught one of his stand-up specials on Amazon or Netflix. You know, he's just all over the place and he carved out a little bit of time to come hang out with us here on the exam room. But before we bring Mike on the show, let's get those health IQs up. So let me throw this number at you first. According to the latest estimates, 52% of adults in the U.S. have at least one chronic condition, and 27% of adults have two or more. That doesn't even factor in the millions and millions of others who haven't been diagnosed yet. So what defines a chronic condition? In particular, when it comes to this case, according to the National Health Interview Survey, it's one of these 10 diseases. Arthritis, cancer, COPD, heart disease, asthma, diabetes, hepatitis, hypertension, stroke, and kidney disease. So those are the 10. And you can add a litany of other illnesses to that list, but those are the 10 that affect 52% of adults in this case. And that is a really, really high number. So today we are going to be continuing our discussion on how to bring that number all the way down so that it's just a fraction of those millions and millions of cases. And to do that, we are going to be putting the focus back on food. You know, in a lot of ways, we have eaten ourselves into this predicament, and now we're going to learn how to eat our way right back out of it. Dr. Kaliova is here with five nutrition tips for treating and preventing disease. Tips that can get your health back on track if you're among that 52%. So good to see you again, Dr. K. So great to be here, Chuck. So when we're talking about overall, before we pull up your article, which is phenomenal, by the way, before we get into these 10 tips, um, I've been talking recently on the show about just how insanely sensitive the body can be in terms of the fuel that we put in it. You put good fuel in, healthy food in, amazing things happen. But you put that unhealthy food in, you go to El Cheapo gas station, essentially, and fuel up on junk food. And guess what? 
bad things happen. You've been doing nutrition research now for so many years. Are you still astounded by just how sensitive our bodies can be to this? I am. Uh, I mean, it takes usually decades uh, to, for example, develop diabetes. And yet when you, um, when you put the right fuel in your body, the changes start uh, really happening over a course of a few days. And in a few weeks, you can see significant, significant improvements. And sometimes it's just astonishing how fast these changes happen on the right kind of fuel. All right. Now we are going to go ahead and pull up this article right now. 10 nutrition tips that help prevent and treat diabetes and other chronic health conditions. Uh, we're going to talk about the top five here today, but for the full 10, you can click on that link that is in the show description, or if you're listening to the podcast, click on it in the episode notes. Uh, now, Dr. Kaliova, let's go right on down to the first tip, which uh, shockingly with this group, <laughs> number one overall, eat a healthy plant-based diet. So in terms of putting good fuel in your body, I suppose this is about as good of a start as it gets. Uh, exactly. Like just, uh, just consider what happens when you don't put the right fuel in your body. Uh, how often does diabetes develop in people? Uh, so the stats from the American Diabetes Association uh, show uh, that about 37 million of Americans, uh, that's about 11% of the U.S. population, has diabetes. And another 96 million people, that's about 38% of the population, has prediabetes. So these numbers should should just like wake you up and be like, you know what, this is something uh, that's really important. Uh, that's something that um, more than half of the population uh, will somehow encounter. Um, their blood sugar control will, be some, will somehow come up uh, during the checkups with their doctor. So uh, this is a topic uh, that's super important because it's not only about your blood sugar. It's about the complications that can develop later. Uh, it's about your kidneys. Uh, diabetes is the number one cause of kidney failure. Um, it's also about your vision. Uh, again, diabetes is the number one cause for blindness uh, in, in the U.S. Um, it's also about your cardiovascular health because diabetes accelerate atherosclerosis and people with diabetes have a five times higher risk of, of dying of cardiovascular disease than general population. So all of these uh, are important aspects of health. And those are the reasons why you should care what you put in your body. Now, the good news uh, is that when you put the right fuel in your body, uh, you can completely... Uh, tip the odds. Uh, people who follow a vegan diet uh, have their diabetes risk cut in half compared with those who don't. Uh, also, uh, they have a much lower chance of developing diabetes compared to general population. Uh, so these studies are interesting, uh, but you may be asking, well, but what if I already have diabetes? Is it now too late for me? And the good news is that it's not. It's never too late. 
even if you have diabetes. Uh, a few research studies have shown that when you switch over to a low-fat vegan diet, you can improve your blood sugar control, you can lose weight, you can improve your blood lipids, your blood pressure, and other cardiometabolic um, markers of health. And so you can improve your health in general, uh, and that also includes your diabetes. And what's amazing is that a vegan diet uh, can be twice effective in bringing down your blood sugar compared to a portion control diet, one that would be like a standard um, di diabetes diet. Uh, so a vegan diet is really effective in the prevention and also in the treatment of diabetes. Uh, and if diabetes runs in your family, uh, eating a healthy plant-based diet is is the number one recommendation. Yeah, let me let me just revisit that because I I think that this bears repeating. Did you just say that a a plant-based diet, a vegan diet, is twice as effective as the standardly prescribed diet for people with diabetes right now? That's exactly right. That is enormous difference. That is so 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 big. Um, I wish a lot of more people knew that. Um, goodness gracious sakes alive. And you also were talking about it kind of never being too late. So even if you have diabetes, what about for somebody who's had it for two decades or longer? I mean, really just been saddled with it for years. Yeah, even if you've had diabetes for a long time, it's never too late to make the change. Uh, even if you have type 1 diabetes, you can give it a try. Um, you know, you will probably need to continue using your insulin, but you may cut down the dose of your insulin. You may be able to cut down other medications that you're using. Uh, so um, even if you're not able to reverse the process completely, you can still see significant improvements in your overall health. There you go. Significant improvements. So there's only upside to this very little down. I mean, no downside that, that I've heard so far. So um, that's that's really important to talk about. Now, number two, we're talking about putting all of this good fuel in our body. But what about the time that we put the good fuel in? So you see there right in the middle of your screen, the second tip, start and finish eating your meals early in the day. Why? Why is meal timing so important? Exactly. Uh, why is it important? Uh, because meal timing uh, is the cue uh, that helps to synchronize our body clock. We have two body clocks. One is in our brain, which is entrained by the light and darkness cycle. And then we have body clocks in each cell of our body, in each organ. And these are... Um, synchronized with the central body clock uh, using nutritional cues, such as cycles of eating and fasting. So when you eat, you tell your body, it's day, uh, it's time to ramp up our metabolism. When you stop eating, uh, you give your body a signal to rest. Uh, it's that simple. Uh, and the better you align your meals with the times of the day, uh, the better for your metabolism. One fascinating study uh, looked at people who were overweight, had a fatty liver, um, had insulin resistance, 
and had a metabolic syndrome. Uh, that means they were overweight, uh, but had also uh, troubles with their blood sugar and also their blood pressure. And so this is a just a cluster of symptoms. Now, what's the way? What's the way out? We already talked about a plant-based diet, but this study didn't change what people were eating. Um, but the researchers decided to do a fascinating experiment. In the first group of people, uh, they allowed them to eat for 12 hours a day, uh, from morning till the evening. So if you start eating your breakfast at 7, you finish eating at 7 p.m. If you have breakfast at 8, then your dinner would be at, 9 p at 8 p.m. and then you wouldn't eat anything afterwards. So it was 12 hours of eating and 12 hours of not eating or fasting. And the second group of people had only a six-hour eating window. Uh, and uh, they were done eating by 3 p.m. Now, was there any difference between these groups? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of their metabolism, the one with the six-hour eating window was much better off. Their insulin sensitivity went up. Uh, the beta cell responsiveness, the way how the beta cells in the pancreas respond to meal intake improved significantly when there, there was a six-hour eating window. Also, their appetite was lower, which is fascinating. Many people are like, these people had to be hungry like crazy. I couldn't, I couldn't take it. I would be starving. Guess what? These people had less appetite. Uh, their appetite was suppressed compared to the group eating 12 hours a day. Uh, and also the oxidative stress was less pronounced on eating only six hours a day. And what's important to say is that the meal intake was shifted toward the morning. Sometimes people do intermittent fasting, but they just skip breakfast and eat a huge dinner at night. Uh, this is not what, what this particular research study was doing. They did the opposite. People were eating breakfast and lunch and were done eating by 3 p.m. Very interesting. Um... I wonder, like, so to me, there it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Now, I think a we're so accustomed to eating three meals per day, it would take a little bit of time to get used to eating just two and being finished eating at three o'clock in the afternoon, as the study would suggest. Um, if you do switch to those two meals per day, um, I would imagine those meals are going to be a little bit larger than those who stick with the standard three meals per day, correct? That's right. Uh, you eat as much as you like. Well, all right. Well, that doesn't sound half bad now, does it? <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want that advice for goodness sakes? All right. Number three on the list here is uh, having a big breakfast every day will help burn more calories during the day. Now, this is really interesting. So it's not just meal timing, but the effect that this large meal is going to have. Talk to us about this extra calorie burn. Where does this come from? Yeah, this is really fascinating. Uh, sometimes people think, you know, if I have extra weight, 
let me just limit the caloric intake and let me just start in the morning. I'm not that hungry in the morning anyway, so it'll be like an easy meal to skip. Uh And yet the research shows that if you eat a hearty breakfast, you will burn 76% more calories during your physical activity during the day which is like a huge amount and you cannot make it, you know, you, you cannot make up for that, right? So if you skip breakfast and are burning 76% less calories during the day, during your daily activities, um, this is just something uh, you will not be able, uh, you know, to, to make up for all right. Next one up is, uh, this is an important one here. Uh, eat at least five servings of fruits and vegetables for a healthy heart. Um, I would assume Dr. Kaliova that the standard person eating the standard American diet probably is falling pretty far short of those five servings. How much, uh, fruits and vegetables is the typical person eating on the typical day? And that's exactly right, Chuck. Uh, The average consumption of fruit is only one serving a day. And the average consumption of vegetables is 1.7 servings a day uh, on on a standard American diet. So we have ways to go to reach at least five servings a day. Is that five servings of fruits and five servings of vegetables or five servings combined? Uh, that's combined, but that's a minimum. And gotcha. in fact, uh, there is a study, a systematic review and meta-analysis uh, conducted by a Canadian research group. Uh, and that that one pulled together uh, more than 80 studies uh, that included more than 4 million people. Uh, and looked at this topic, like, is eating even more fruits and vegetables than five servings a day beneficial? And the answer is yes, absolutely. There was a linear relationship. The more, the better. But five servings per day is the minimum you should eat. Uh, This study also looked at which fruits and vegetables uh, would be the, the most beneficial. Uh, and the answer is, uh, when we take fruit, uh, do you have any guess, Chuck, which fruits would be most beneficial? To the heart? Exactly, to the heart. Yep. Uh, the ones that have the most fiber? I mean, that that would be kind of my start. Uh, or they always go with uh, an apple a day, keeps the doctor away. Yeah. I would assume that includes cardiologists. Yeah, exactly. Bingo. Like apples and pears, that's 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 one of the most beneficial fruits. Uh, I you know I would respond to the question which which fruits are the most beneficial, the ones you will eat. <laughs> <laughs> so apples and pears are are you know one uh, one kind of fruit that that ha- that has been found the bo- most beneficial. Uh, then it's also citrus fruit and one hundred percent fruit juice. Uh, I suppose this is because uh, in um, in the population studies, these were the kinds of fruit that were consumed the most. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, my expectation and my interpretation of the results. Now, let's move on to the vegetables. Which which vegetables do you think will be most beneficial for the uh, heart? 
anything it's got to be leafy greens right yeah. like if kale isn't on there like Absolutely. we're just living in bizarro world yeah let's go with the leafy <laughs> greens uh, yeah. any any other vegetables oh uh i mean i was gonna stop there is there really a bad one i mean <laughs> or i mean you know so again i'd be looking at, at the ones that uh, pack the most fiber punch the ones that are the most nutrient dense so uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to stick with leafy greens, but probably I'm going to throw carrots on there. Maybe beets, uh, you oh, know, yeah. what, uh, what's the, what's the answer? You got the answers, doc. Don't, don't leave <laughs> me hanging here. Good guess. So, uh, carrots are in, uh, another one is cruciferous vegetables. And okay. there's also one more kind of vegetables that has been found the most beneficial, and that's garlic, onions, and leeks, this family of alien. <laughs> the family of aliens. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, really quickly here, um, it just dawned on me, when we're talking about uh, the number of servings of fruit and vegetables uh, people are getting every day. Does that include the fruit juice? Because you did mention that in terms of benefits just a second ago. Absolutely. In this particular study, 100% fruit juice is included among the beneficial ones. Uh, and, you know, uh, there is... Why is it 100% fruit juice? Why is it not just sugary water with, <laughs> with some, uh, some fruit flavors? Uh, it's 100% fruit juice because there is a good chance that the antioxidants will be still present in the fruit juice. Um, if you get a fruit juice with pulp, you will also uh, get the benefits of the fiber uh, that's in the fruit. Um, and if you squeeze it fresh, um, that's the best because the antioxidant content will be the highest. But if a person were to, instead of squeezing that orange and making orange juice, actually eat the mm -hmm. orange itself whole, uh, perhaps the, the biggest benefit comes from that. And by, by the way, if you eat the orange, don't throw away the, the white peels because they contain a lot of flavonoids. Uh, flavonoids are, you know, the phytochemicals that are beneficial for your heart. Uh, and those would be out if you if you do a fruit juice. So even the, the white peels, not the orange one, <laughs> but the white peels are still beneficial. So don't so, throw, throw them away. You talk about the stringy things that are on the inside kind of coating the orange. So you want to keep those, but don't necessarily eat the orange peel itself. <laughs> Yeah, but also uh, when you when you peel the orange, uh, you can be really meticulous, and some people just pull away like everything that is white on on the surface. If you're not that meticulous, and if you just leave some of the some of the white stuff on on the outside, um, this is what I'm talking about. Right on. And I know also if you have a recipe that calls for orange flavor and you need some of that orange zest, you just take that peel, yeah. you flip it over the white side and you just kind of grate that on there. Yeah. Boom. And there's your orange zest. And it's um, you get those, those better. Oh yeah. Packs. I'll even do that a little bit in my tea sometimes, especially in the mm -hmm. fall. It's good stuff right there. All right. Last but not least, uh, we have one more to go. Uh, eat meals at regular times and your body will process calories more efficiently. So if you're going to eat breakfast at seven, eat breakfast at seven every day. Is that what you're saying here? Exactly. And this is a fascinating area of research. Uh, sometimes people cannot wrap their head around it. They're like, 
it doesn't really matter when I eat. I just, when I feel like it and when my schedule allows, I'll eat my meals. Uh, And guess what? Both, uh, there were two studies, two crossover studies, one in lean people and one in people who were uh, struggling with extra weight. And both of the studies showed exactly the same. It's much more beneficial when you keep the times of your meals consistent. Uh, exactly as you said, when you eat breakfast at seven, just eat breakfast at seven every day. Uh, and when you do that, what can you expect? Uh, first of all, the studies show uh, that the blood lipids imp- improved uh, when when the timing of the meals was consistent. Uh, and second of all, women who were struggling with the extra weight uh, were uh, eating less calories when they're when they were keeping the times of their meals meals consistent. Uh, they were less hungry and they made better choices throughout the day. And also they were burning more calories in, in terms of the thermic effect of food, which is the amount of energy that's released in the form of heat after you eat a meal. So if you eat your meals at regular or consistent times, uh, your body will get rid of the extra energy more efficiently. Fascinating stuff. Um, So I know that we were talking about that eating twice a day and making sure that you have this nice long fasting window. But even if somebody isn't necessarily adhering to that, even if they are eating the three meals per day, plus perhaps a snack in there, one or two, um, if they're still eating those meals and those snacks every day at the same time, are they getting the same benefit? Exactly. So these are independent factors. Uh, the more you can combine together, the more of a, of a change you can see. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if you're only doing, let's say, three out of these five, you will still get the benefits. All right. Three out of five isn't bad in baseball. That's certainly an all-star average. Uh, So here, here's the score. Uh, We only got to the top five, but as you can see again, back there on your screen, uh, she penned, Dr. Kaliova penned 10 nutrition tips that help prevent and treat diabetes and other chronic health conditions on the website, One Green Planet. And again, you can find a link to this right now in the show description or in the episode notes. Go ahead and click on that and uh, read away, my friends. And Dr. Kaliova, I'd be remiss also if I didn't mention that you'll be speaking at the forthcoming International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine that's coming up August 18th through the 20th. You're going to be talking about not just healthy hospitals, but you're also going to be talking about uh, uh, diets and fatty liver disease. So pretty interesting research that you're going to be presenting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping to see you there. Oh, I think that you will. You should stop by the podcast booth. We're going to be uh, recording episodes all three days. So uh, if you have a couple of minutes, swing by. We'll do a live show right then and right there. Awesome. Looking forward to that. There you go. All right. Dr. Hanna Kaliova, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you, Chuck. Again, there is a link to all 10 tips that Dr. Kaliova wrote for One Green Planet in the episode notes. And also in the episode notes, you will find a link to save your seat for ICNM. Really do hope to see you in Washington, D.C., August 18th through the 20th. Now, my next guest will be performing at the Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis, July 28th through the 30th. 
He is undoubtedly one of the funniest men to have ever taken the vegan plunge, and he talks all about that decision during his stand-up performances. The man is not shy whatsoever about poking fun at himself in front of a meat-loving crowd, but he also does it in a way that piques their interest, makes them wonder, what does this comic know that I don't? Now, his first ever album, Vegan Mind Meld, it was one of iTunes' top 10 comedy albums of the year, and his latest album, aka, debuted at number one. Ladies and gentlemen, the vegan comedian, Mike Kaplan. Mr. Mike Kaplan, what is up, my friend? So glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. It is a great pleasure and wonderful. Like, I feel like I don't even need to say anything. You, you've said it all. I like to get the resume up front. I mean, because it's not the typical resume that you would find on the exam room. Typically, it's like they've graduated from here. They've practiced medicine here. They're a lifestyle medicine physician. They're changing lives. That's great. But I've never once introduced anybody who has their own special called Small Dork and Handsome. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I make art not just for me, but for anyone else who likes to see themselves in it. So uh, you're the target market, and I very much appreciate it. Uh, when I think of comedy I and comedians and stand-up, I absolutely love. Um, I don't know of any others who are outwardly plant-based. Do you kind of have that space cornered? Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, once I've been a comedian for about 20 years and I've been a vegan for about 20 years. And so over the time I've met, uh, I, I, I don't know if I've met now. I'm glad that there are like so many, uh, plant-based comedians out there. I, I was once in a, I think a veg news, uh, or some vegetarian magazine, like, uh, feature along with other, uh, I, I don't know if it was all vegan but or some vegetarian uh, comedians and comedy-related people. One in there that I'll name is uh, my, my best friend, Zach Sherwin, who is a fantastic comedian, rapper, and uh, entrepreneur of a project called The Crossword Show, which is fantastic. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of uh, performance, comedy, music, crossword-related art that I've ever seen. Uh, and so if it's near you, go see it. So Zach Sherwin is one, uh, and he definitely talks about his veganism uh, in in his work as well. Then there is uh, Weird Al. Weird Al, surprisingly. Uh, I think he was in that spread as well and is, you know, a fantastic... Uh, I don't have to tell you about who Weird Al is, but what a, what a kind human to other humans and to animals and all the sentient beings uh, that exist. But, uh, but yeah, there's... There's not there's not a ton of us, I think, comparatively. Uh, and I, so, yeah, I'm I'm grateful that the thing the way that I live my life uh, is as uh, statistically uh, rare as it is so that uh, there there exists a market to be cornered or, or whether I don't know. Actually, I don't actually know if there is one, but uh, I'm working on I'm working on it. I'm it's me in the corner. Just me <laughs> in the spot. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Um, so why did you decide to start incorporating um, some of your, your feelings about veganism, activism and, and animals and all that stuff kind of into your sets? I'm, for a lot of people, that's that's like a touchy topic. Right. So and, and you're putting it all out there in your sets, man. So what was your thought process when you first decided to, I guess, have your vegan coming out party on stage? Ha. Thank you for asking. I mean, the. I have a, I think I'll have a very long answer, but it'll start with me saying the short answer is that I, I talk about the things that I experience. And that's, I think, what most comedians are doing in some form or another, talking about, you know, whether if they're political uh, and they're talking about the way that they see the world and society and justice and such through their own lens and filter, or, you know, an observational comedian, like just noting the small things about whether it be, you know, food, dating, other such things. Like so many comedians talk about food. So I think it, it would be. It would be strange for me to be a vegan uh, as a human being, and uh, I feel like it would be like a glaring omission to be like, well, what is this guy? You know, like all these other comedians, like you watch Jim Gaffigan, like he talks about food all the time. Like, Mike, uh, as a comedian, why aren't you talking about the food that you eat? Um, but sincerely also, of course, like it's funny the way that you say, you know, like, is it possibly a touchy topic? And for me, like so many of the ways that I live my life and the things that I thus talk about on stage are things that uh, not everyone less like in a mainstream way engages with. Uh, like I put out an album called No Kidding about how I don't want children. and I'm not the only person to not want children. But, you know, I'd say by and large, like we come from a long line of people who have had children. Uh, so. <laughs> That's out there a good amount. Uh, I've talked about uh, when I was atheist identified that, uh, when I'm like psychedelic identified that, when I uh, when I was uh, open relationship identified that. Uh, so I've, I've talked about a lot of things and I think veganism was one of the first things that I found like, oh, I know that most of my audience at standard comedy venues are not going to be vegan, are not going to be vegetarian, are not going to be plant-based in specific ways. They're just going to be regular meat and potatoes people. And I'm like, well, look, potatoes, that's vegan. You're there. You're halfway there. Uh, just, uh, just focus on those potatoes to start with. But, so I, I found that uh, creating comedy from this place of like, you know, forging my act in the fires of people who didn't necessarily agree with uh, everything or perhaps anything that I was going to say was like very uh, strengthening, very like helpful to be like, well, if people are going to laugh at things that they don't uh, agree with, then the jokes have to be like more airtight, funnier, you know, like more sort of like undeniable. And so I found that that's like a it, it was, it, you know, it wasn't like a tactic. It was just like, well, this is what I'm experiencing. So this is what I'm writing jokes about. And now I have to make them good enough for people to be able to, you know, appreciate them and connect with them, uh, which is what I think a lot of comedians are doing. Like, you know, the uh, like I think was it uh, Carlin has a quote. He's like something like it's the comedian's job to find out where the line, determine where the line is, purposefully cross it, and then bring the audience along with him or her or them to enjoy it. Bring them along laughing at things that are over this line that he has purposely determined uh, that is to be crossed. 
I'm a big fan of crossing lines. I don't often get an opportunity to do it on this show, but pushing boundaries is a lot of fun. I think that there might be a, a good opportunity for you to do that, given the fact that there are so many vegan stereotypes out there. I, I saw one set uh, when I was getting ready to interview you where you were talking about the, one of the knocks on veganism is, you know, like, you're weak. And, and then you like you point to yourself. It's like, yeah, you know, basically here I am. There are so many stereotypes out there. Do you find that when you just a approach those head on, it does kind of erode any of that touchiness that's also in the audience um, for people who are like, I'm going to eat my steak and I'm going to eat it with breakfast, lunch and dinner? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the very first vegan joke or vegetarian joke that I made and like the way that I would get into it in my earliest sets, I would say, hi, I'm vegan. Are there any other douchebags here? And <laughs> I felt that that would be, you know, a, a fun, a fun disarming way to immediately like address the stereotype that I think a lot of people have. Uh, about vegans or like on, on my newest album, AKA, I get into it by saying like, I'm not here to tell you that I'm living my life better than you. I'm merely here to imply it. And uh, then further like saying, you know, like I, I also, I was not, I was, before I was vegan, like before I was vegetarian, like I was, you know, uh, I wasn't those things for 18, 19 years of my life. And so I get it. I remember, I understand like the, the fear of like, well, is there going to be food for me? Am I going to be able to like every people just everyone sentient beings just want to live, you know, and we need food to do that. And you know, when you're raised in a certain environment, like I was raised sort of a typical American meat food, you know, like just like burgers and hot dogs uh, and pizza and that sort of thing. And uh, classic American pizza. And I, I, I didn't have an I, I remember feeling that there was this gap uh, between like what I how I wanted to live, how I thought it would be ideal and what seemed possible. Like when I was, you know, a teenager, I was like, you know, not in control of necessarily like what food was even in the house. I didn't have a ton of money myself. So you sort of, you know, uh, beholden to your your parents, your family, what, who, wherever you're living. Uh, and I was like, well, it'd be great to not hurt animals. It'd be great to not kill animals, but I don't know, you know, like that doesn't seem possible. And so I think that a lot of people have that. I feel like so many people have the idea. They're like, of course, if I could, yeah, but it, but you know, I just have this inertia, you know, just, this is, this is the way that I do. This is the way I have done things. So this is the way that I will do things. And like, but so many people out there are like, I, they know that the movies exist. They know the documentaries, they know the books, they know the information. And they're like actively avoiding it because if they were to address it, they'd be like, oh yeah, I can't watch how animals are treated. Otherwise I couldn't keep participating in it. And I like participating. So I feel like I remember feeling that way. It's not like I'm, I'm not special compared to anyone. Like in Buddhism, which I've been learning a lot about recently, I really like that they say, like, what one fool can do, any fool can do. It's not like the Dalai, my friend Gus, who is a Buddhist and who I learn a lot from, he told me this story about the Dalai Lama and that, you know, they're like, okay, well, of course, the Dalai Lama can be kind and compassionate, but he's the Dalai Lama. And that's like, he, Gus makes this comparison to like, well, that's like saying like, wow, what an, if you built a house 
out with your own tools, with your own hands, with bricks and wood, and you made a house, and then be like, wow, what an amazing house that just fell out of the sky right here. Like, no, I, I did that. I That's a thing that it took time and effort and energy and thoughtfulness and, you know, acting on these intentions. And that, that's the way that the Dalai Lama is capable of the kindness and compassion that he exhibits is by intending it and acting it and, you know, actively participating in it and that anyone can do that. I think he has a quote, the Dalai Lama says, like, you know, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. And so we can always, you know, be a little kinder or better or something than we were yesterday. If we know a little more today, then we can do a little more. Uh, and so I, to, to get back to, I think, what your question was, like, my goal in, you know, discussing things that right now, like, I like to think of, you know, I never thought about it like this before, and I'm looking for my digital recorder to record this to do as a possible joke, but the idea is... Uh, most of my audiences are not full of vegans, but I like to think that they're full of future vegans, like, because I'm a vegan who at one point was a future vegan, was a non-vegan at the time. And so my goal is to, you know, not to these days, like not apologize for like, you know, who I am and what I'm doing other than maybe jokingly be like, we're sure annoying, aren't we? Okay, but seriously, we all, it's horrible, right? We we all care uh, about, about, I mean, every so many people, unless you're a sociopath, like love other beings, including like cute animals. People love looking at cows. They love looking at chickens. Like, like we're all these living things. And so I think there is something to tap into that it isn't just, you know, I, I feel like I'm pushing people, uh, hopefully, if, if I'm pushing people, it's not like into somewhere that they're un- if it's uncomfortable, it's only because it's something that they, it's like the uncanny valley of what they, uh, they the conflict of what they really do truly believe and in their best heart selves like would live and what they're doing right now, which is not yet having gotten there, but, but I'm optimistic. Well, you're a soulful guy, man. You can tell like, you, I mean, you, you also, you have a math background. I mean, like what you just said is, extremely intelligent in my opinion i love i love the way this conversation is going how important do you think it is for you as a performer to push someone into that space where they are a little bit uncomfortable does that really help you i i guess have a more robust kind of a show because if you're sitting there and everybody's comfortable and ha 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 this is a joke that really it's funny but it doesn't make me feel any kind of way I don't think that that's really going to connect is if you like really kind of push them over into a space that they're kind of unfamiliar with. You know what I mean? Uh, I do. And so I guess it's inter It's an interesting framing because I don't usually think about it in terms of making the audience uncomfortable because like I, I mean, that's not my goal. My goal is not for the audience to be uncomfortable. My goal is for the audience to laugh and sometimes uh, and and my goal in general is actually I think about it not in terms of. Uh, what the audience is doing, but in terms of what am I doing? Uh, my goal is to communicate uh, what I think is funny, meaningful, personal, unique about me, about my perspective. Like I'm, I'm here as a like. If another Carlin quote I love is he says, uh, "You're here for me. I'm here for me. No one's here for you." And I like that, even though that's not. There's part of it that resonates as a joke, but also like I'm 
uh, when I'm writing, when I'm coming up with what I'm going to say on stage, I... Uh, I do not censor myself. I just, I'm like, what do I want to say? And then I come up with thousands of things. And then I determine what are the ones that I do want to say? What are the ones that I want to hone and craft into jokes, into chunks, into an act, into a show? And obviously performing as a comedian, you know, as a musician, you, you can just write a whole album in your basement. Nobody hears it except for you. And then you release it. And there it is. With comedy, that's much rarer. It's much more common to, uh, like, the audience is, in a way, partially the instrument that we're playing. We're like, oh, let me, how does these notes strike you? Oh, we got to tune that one up a little bit. Ah, that one. Okay, great. This audience, this one's a little further in tune or attuned than this other one. And, and so I think that... Uh, where let's see, I have a specific thing that I want to get to, and I I'll just maybe I'll start there and try to backtrack and and get us there. <laughs> but the so a thing that happens sometimes I feel is I say things that are true to me that are meaningful to me. Let's say if if about veganism, if about like the reasons for my veganism, uh, I I think that these are things that objectively people can understand, and so. I, and then if they're hearing them, like a joke is a wonderful delivery system for the truth, you know, especially for a truth that people uh, might not have come to on their own without this joke and maybe wouldn't have been open to uh, if it was just delivered in like a sermon or a speech than, you know, in humor. And so I feel like a way that things go sometimes is like I'll tell jokes about my experience of being vegan and then that will somehow maybe possibly undo some of the stereotypes that people have about vegans that like if I do it in a way that is not overbearing, if I do it in a way that does not seem, you know, like annoying or arrogant or whatever the stereotype that people have, like wonderful co like compliments that I've gotten about the comedy that I've done about being vegan from even from sometimes people who've become vegan or have become vegetarian in part because some of the things that I've said have resonated with them in a way that they're like, like mathematically what you're saying seems valid. And so I have no choice but to become vegan because your comedy proved it to me. Like that's not a direct quote, <laughs> but like there are experiences that are kind of like that. So I feel like it one, if not a goal, but sometimes like a, a beautiful, like a joyous, a joyful outcome of my comedy is people are like, I laughed and like somehow it's like a Trojan horse, like that the truth has gotten snuck into them. And they're like, I like what you're saying. I didn't agree with. And yet it seems I didn't agree with this undeniable thing that you have shared. And so even if they don't immediately become vegan magically on the spot, I feel like a good thing, uh, the disarming nature of comedy has the capacity to make someone, to help someone hear something and listen to something that they might otherwise not have done. And so to get back to the, the root of the question, the discomfort that a person might feel in that situation uh, is... Perhaps the discomfort of growth, the growing pains of going from being like, well, I thought this way and now I have this new information, this new data that I must reckon with because and I think that, again, it goes all the way back to like people are generally, you know, the in Buddhism, uh, one of the ways the framings of it that I really like is that 
the goals of a lot of Buddhists, if not all Buddhists, are to increase happiness and decrease suffering for all sentient beings. And that, you know, it can often start with ourselves and our families and our, for a lot of people, our species. But uh, it's starting from a place, you know, putting your own oxygen mask on first and then being like, okay, now it seems like everyone deserves, every being deserves oxygen and food and care and the capacity to live their life uh, the best that they can. I think that truly deep down, everyone agrees with that or would agree with that in some framing to be like all other things being equal. Like you do you believe do you think if you could live your life causing less pain and more pleasure, would that be good? I think so many people would agree that it would like it seems like very basic and you know like not super controversial and then that the the discomfort that a person might feel hearing jokes for about veganism and about my perspective on it might be like sort of the the discrepancy the cognitive dissonance between that that immense truth that they uh that they know you know within their deepest self and the way that they're living externally that there's a conflict there and so like i don't think i'm providing the discomfort i think the discomfort's coming from inside the house you know we're all we're all experiencing uh our own our own engagement with this world and uh i guess i think i might have finished answering the question i guess here's another joke i tell sometimes about here's the the best argument i'll say the I think the most, like, this is really like the realest argument that I've ever heard uh, against being vegan, against uh, caring for animals, against, you know, living a plant-based life for these reasons in this way. Here's the best argument I've ever heard against it is, uh, I don't wanna, why do I have to? And like, because I truly think that that's really the root of it, that people don't, they, they, in a way, they know they should, but they don't want to, and so therein lies uh, the discomfort. And I, I hope that, I mean, I hope that my jokes are funny as objectively as possible to as many people as possible, and if they also do help a person who regularly eats meat, uh, think about whether they might want to do that less, uh, that is a bonus. I find irony in it that as you're performing, you're planting these little seeds of contemplation at a venue where very likely if it's like an improv or something like that, people are, you know, chowing down on cheese sticks or burgers or chicken wings or whatever the case may be. So they're, you know, really as they're eating, you're delivering this message. I would think then that that's really going to cause them to actually think right then and there, like as the set is going on. Have you ever given thought to that? That is a great question. I'm certainly thinking about it now, and maybe I will uh, like introduce that into the act. Where, like you know, because certainly you're you're absolutely right. When I'm performing at uh, your sort of conventional comedy clubs, they often have. Uh, I mean, these days I'm so glad that there is uh, usually more and more likely a vegan option or possibilities of vegetables on the menu. So I feel like you know society is changing uh, at you know a glacial rate, but uh, but still. Uh, glaciers, you know, eventually uh, will disappear because of climate change. And so eventually we'll be, we'll be in a completely new world where we'll just be eating uh, humans, other humans, um, because we've uh, caused all the other animals to be extinct. But 
There's a comedian uh, who died a, a few years back named Barry Crimmins, who I loved, who had a joke about becoming vegetarian where he said, uh, I, I think I became vegetarian one day when I was holding a chicken wing uh, or a chicken, a drumstick. I was holding a drumstick and I noticed that it was, uh, you know, a bone with meat on it. And he's like, and I was holding it in my hand, which I also noticed was a bone with meat on it. And like just that, I, I, I loved that way of putting it. So I like, I wonder if I, I, I will, I, I appreciate, I didn't know you didn't set this out to be like a challenge, but I'm absolutely going to think about when I'm performing in places now, like the classic, I feel like this is a showbiz classic as well, uh, that, you know, I'll be here all week, you know, try the veal and I'll be like, I'll be here, you know, all night, uh, try not the veal, try not the chicken wings, try not, uh, the burger, try order, order just the lettuce, the lettuce and tomato. Just order the pickles, you know, whatever they've got on this menu. Uh, yeah, try. I'll be here all week. Try the pickles. <laughs> there it is. I'll be here all week. Try the pickles. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give DC Improv. I pulled up their menu as you were talking there. And right up front, uh, they do list the vegan options. So they've got hummus with uh, vegetables. Cool. Chipotle chickpea burger. And then uh, they can do salads. Just hold the chicken and then they are hold the chicken and cheese and then they're vegan. So not bad. But then if you look at the remainder of the uh, menu, and it is, you know, exactly what it is we were talking about. Mozzarella sticks, chicken tenders, crab dip, um, crab cake sandwich, barbecue bacon cheeseburger, uh, all kinds of burgers, BLTs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that a joke like that could hit. Uh, I really do. I think that there's potential there just because it's in their hand as you're talking. Um, yeah. So it just kind of almost becomes like a prop for you. The fact that they've, they've got this burger in their hands at the time. Um, speaking of foods at improvs, I mean, do you have a go-to meal before you perform? Are you superstitious or are there certain restaurants that you hit in every city before you go in? How does that work for you? Uh, great question. Thank you. Uh, so I would say that I'm, if it's a binary yes or no, I'm not superstitious. I am just regular stitious, just like Clark <laughs> Kent stitious. And, uh, you know, trying to keep the audience in stitious. And uh, I would say it depends on, like, if a club, like, let's say, recently, uh, the person who connected us as uh, the owner of Green Fair, the vegan restaurant in Herndon, Virginia, Gwyn, uh, and I just, I love performing there. I love performing in a vegan venue. I love performing for, you know, a more majority vegan, vegetarian, plant-based audience. So if, you know, I'll usually check out the menu of the venue that I'm performing if it's not specifically a vegan place and if they have food that I can eat then I'm thrilled to eat that either before my set or after depending or in between shows um I I was on the road recently in uh Colorado in a few different towns and I remember you know I'll usually so the joke that I tell sometimes is when people say so you travel the country uh have you and you must be finding all different kinds of vegan spots like have you ever thought about creating a uh, like a vegan travel guide, like writing a vegan travel book. And I say, yes. And I think I'm going to call the book Google Vegan Town Name. And uh, <laughs> essentially, that is that is what I do. Or now I, I use the Happy Cow app sometimes as well, uh, which is fan a fantastic way. So like 
if I'm in a town for, it depends how long I'm there. If I'm in a town for a week, I'll usually like scope out like the used bookstores, the comic book stores, the botanical gardens, the public parks, and uh, the the vegan restaurants. And you know, I'll look at what the best ones are. And it depends. Often my girlfriend is traveling with me, so I guess here's a an a, an answer to your question: is when we're on the road. Like since the pandemic began, I've driven uh, a lot more than flown places. I've taken a few flights, but a lot of times we've driven to Kansas City, where her mom lives. We've driven to Chicago and Minneapolis. We've driven to Florida from New York. Uh, and so on our trips, one of our mainstays is searching for Whole Foods along the way. And because Whole Foods almost always has, you know, some food that we can eat. And uh, specifically, there's not all Whole Foods. Uh, I don't like hashtag not all Whole Foods, but many Whole Foods have this brand. Uh, what is it? I don't like to say brand because uh, uh, branding comes from uh, the marking uh, cattle with a very harsh, uh, you know, burning sensation. So like when people ask like, Mike, what's your brand? I'm like, I like it's more my brand. You know, my brand <laughs> is uh, oat, I guess. And uh, my flavor, I like to say as well, my style, my vibe. You know, uh, but they have a so there's this company that makes food that's in many Whole Foods called Urban Remedy uh, or Urban Remedies, I think. And uh, they have a wonderful they have like a bunch of raw stuff. They have a, a bunch of this r lovely uh, vegan Caesar salad that we get a lot. So that's one when we can find that we often get that because we know we love it. So Whole Foods are a place that I hit a lot. Um, but then, yeah, just if I go to a town and it has a vegan restaurant, if it has many vegan restaurants, I try to uh, support as many of them as I can. So, like, I think there's a place, I love the name, I think it's in Raleigh or the Raleigh area, the Fiction Kitchen, I love. Uh, what, a, what a fun, what a fun, like, just sonorous set of sounds there. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, there's towns, we were just in Portland, uh, Oregon, and there were, you know, there's a place called uh, Fermenter, and it's just like, you know, classic uh, vegan place with a, an emphasis on fermented things. Like, uh, but yeah, I feel like it's wonderful that there's so many towns that I've traveled to that have, I think, restaurants too numerous to even think about or name all of them. I'll name one more. When I, I, I did comedy in Boston for many years, that's where I started. And one my favorite place to go to, my go-to up there is uh, Grasshopper, an Asian vegan place. And uh, and also throw in, in Teaneck, New Jersey. I My mom lives in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. And I love veggie heaven. So just, yeah, I would... Uh, before a sh like so I don't have specific routines or rituals before a show other than to show up to the venue uh, before the show or before my spot but uh, then also just like search for the best vegan food around and, and sometimes plug in those familiar places that I know about into the old GPS or look them up in the happy cow app uh, I I mean I stopped listening when you said there was a place called the Fermenter. Is it is the ferment? <laughs> that sounds like a bad pro wrestling gimmick, but an amazing name for a restaurant. That's awesome, man. Oh yeah, it it's I I think Portland is one of my it's it might be my favorite city that I've never lived in. 
Uh, I I went there. I've probably been there, you know, certainly some double digit number of times in the past decade, like uh, an average of pr- probably more than once a year because there was there's a wonderful comedy club there that I just performed at called Helium there. They used to do there were for 10 years or so. There was a the Bridgetown Comedy Festival and I just loved it. And I think one of the things I love about the town is that I believe that in order to stay open at night, uh, bars have to have food until like some food until two in the morning. And I think there might, be, it's at least seems like there's some regulation that there need to be vegan options, or at least there's just so many venues, uh, that have like, there's vegan food till two in the morning. So many places. I bet there's more late night vegan food in Portland, uh, you know, per capita, uh, proportionally than even New York, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't, I would say shots fired, but you know, uh, I'm a pacifist. So, you know, uh, v- vegan shots delivered down the face. If I don't know, I also drink alcohol these days, but you know, uh, yeah, I, I love Portland. What a, what a town for veganism. There's a vegan strip club there, if that's your thing. Uh, but they also have the most, uh, strip clubs and bookstores per capita. It's a, it's a fascinating town, uh, that I love very much. Shout out to Portland. All right. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, talk about your broccoli and ice cream podcast. Um, That is one of the more clever and unique names I've heard for a show. What, What does broccoli and ice cream mean? Because I know that there is a deep meaning behind it. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, so first, I'll say that uh, as as a vegan person, as a you know a plant based eater, there are sometimes people that are like, "Hey, what do you mean ice cream? Isn't ice cream not vegan?" I'm like, "Well, uh, first of all, it's metaphorical. Uh, no ice creams were harmed in the making of my podcast. Uh, also, of course, like the word cream itself, uh, let's let's take it back. Let's reclaim it to the uh, not just non vegan lifestyle." There's cashew cream, there's coconut cream, there's, you know, almond-based, obviously, almond-based ice creams. And, like, to call those things, like, some people are like, can you call them that? And I I do love, I don't know if you followed the the Just Mayo uh, lawsuit where people were like, hey, you can't call it mayo because it's mayo has egg in it and just mayo is vegan and doesn't have egg. And the just mayo people were like, oh, our just means like justice. We're the mayo of justice. We're not merely mayo. We're justice-based mayo. And they won. So, but also uh, I think that the fact that people are fine with, you know, when people are like, you can't call it almond milk. Where are you milking the almonds? You know, you got to call it almond juice or something. Uh, but people are fine with coconut milk. Somehow that is, you know, grandparented in, uh, even though it sometimes seems like grandfather is grandfathered in. But I'm, I'm start trying to start grandparented in. Um, and people are like, if you're fine with coconut milk, then why not almond milk? Why not? Like, words mean what people agree that they mean. There is no inherent meaning to these sounds. So this is all to say, uh, first of all, that is uh, to defend the vegan bona fides of uh, calling a show broccoli and ice cream. Second, I'll say that the name I'll credit uh, the aforementioned vegan friend, Zach Sherwin, uh, who my dear friend who I talked to if not every day, near every day, for I believe it was in conversation with him that we were discussing the concept from, you know, from which sprung the idea for the podcast and the name for the podcast. 
which is that essentially I talk to people. I have two conversations with a guest each week or so, uh, each week-ish. And one of the conversations uh, I say, I talk to them about the broccoli, the work of their life. And then I talk to them about, in the other conversation, the ice cream, the joy of their life. So... Uh, Often I'm talking to comedians, but sometimes activists, sometimes authors, sometimes musicians, other artists, just friends. I say people who do some kind of work in their life as represented by broccoli. And of course, you know, sometimes the work is joyful and sometimes broccoli is delicious. I feel like sometimes people hear the name and they're like, oh, things you don't like and things you like or, you know, bad things and good things. But like, I love broccoli and I love a nice vegan ice cream. And I think that they're both valuable, uh, important parts of a full life to have, you know, some meaningful uh, creativity, expression of the way that you live your life. Like, so I ask people, you know, what, you know, what are you doing creatively and how did you get to that place? And then for the ice cream portion of the conversation, I say outside of work, uh, what brings you joy, peace, calm, or otherwise helps you feel the way that you enjoy feeling that you want to feel when you're not working knowing of course that your work also might be a source of joy peace and calm and so often i feel like uh uh, i get a version of the answer like well my work brings me joy so these things are of course intertwined and need not be like categorically dichotomous it's not like you gotta have work over here and it's and you gotta have joy over here like i love that you know the reason that i'm doing comedy is because I love doing it. And before it was my job, I did it because I loved it. And then I was thankfully able to create a life in which doing the thing that I love does essentially pay my bills. And then I also have the things that I do in my life that I love. Like if I were to answer the question, like I love music. And at one point music was my aspiration to be a singer songwriter for a job, for a career. But now I'm like, oh, I love making music, playing music, recording music, listening to music, singing with my girlfriend, just singing in the shower, all these things. So it feels good to have something that's not, I I read a I forget. Oh, what book was this in? I was just reading something uh, and is a book that I think I just finished. I'll I'll try to figure it out and send it to you. But there was a definition, a defining of. uh, Oh, I remember it was the book Dollars and Cents, S-E-N-S-E, by Dan Ariely, a social scientist who I love, and Jeff Chrysler, uh, a comedian who's a friend of mine. Uh, So they co-wrote this book, and I believe it was in there that they defined work as something that you are obligated to do and play as something that you are not obligated to do. And that sometimes the same activity might be like, you know, you might pay a lot of money to do like they, I think the example they gave was uh, British noble folk would pay money as a status symbol to, you know, drive a horse and buggy. And then also there are people who as a job drive a horse and buggy, but the people who are doing it for the joy, uh, if you were like, Hey, you could get paid to do that. They'd be like, Oh no, that's not what I'm doing this for. So I think that, uh, for getting back to the specifics of broccoli and ice cream, like for me, I'm thrilled that I get to live my life doing the work that I do, creating comedy and otherwise. And then I'm also glad that there are things that I don't have to do that I love doing that I do uh, only for their own sake, which is also, you know, a version of like what got me into comedy. But uh, now I'm going around around in circles. The point is, uh, I think that everyone has or can have these aspects in their life that 
every and so I, I love talking to people about the things that they love so much that they do it for a job and the things that they love so much that they do it even though it is not part it is not required by anyone other than their own joy seeking that's awesome that's uh the concept is so great and the name fits it to a t and it fits your personality to a t so well done my friend Thank bravo you. to you um it, that's not the only uh online project that you have going on uh you have a series of other online shows i believe on fridays is that right uh, there was at one point, thank you for asking, uh, this, this particular Friday, uh, July 8th, if, if, if this is coming out before then, July 8th, 2022, or for time travelers, whenever you get there, uh, I am doing an online, uh, headlining comedy show, uh, that is all, all remote, all from like wherever you are, like normally you have to come out to a, to a building to see me. Sometimes there are hybrids, but this is one, uh, via Rush Ticks, which is sort of like an online, uh, uh, like entertainment purveying uh, platform now. Uh, they used to only be about, you know, selling tickets to things, but now they're like, oh, why don't we sell tickets to, once the pandemic began, uh, events that happen uh, remotely from anywhere. So Friday, July 8th, I'll be uh, doing a, and you can find out via Rushdicks, via my website, all the details, but a, a live hour-long comedy show. Ah, thank you. What a, what a wonderful uh, crawl that is there beneath me, right? Chiron, that's the word I'm looking for. I like, I like knowing words for things. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, all the dates are uh, for live dates as well at my website. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'll be doing an hour of comedy and then I believe a half hour of Q&A afterwards. And uh, so I love, I love uh, in engaging with the people who are engaging with my comedy. So that is happening there. I also do have uh, at least one other podcast. Uh, I say at least because there's others in the works, but one called The Faucet, where I just talk uh, I spout off for however long I want, uh, and you can look find that is also something that started during the pandemic because my girlfriend was like, you could talk like you, you, I did an online show. And she was like, you could do that every week, just like create a new hour of something or a new 40 minutes or a new eight minutes. And so, uh, that one comes out, uh, whenever I feel like it, uh, and Ramin Nazer did the artwork for both of these podcasts of mine. Uh, I also Every once in a while, do various Instagram lives uh, with my friend Liz Glazer, uh, who I've got another podcast in the works with. And yeah, but if you want to find out more about anything, the uh, following me on social media at Mike Kaplan, spelled the weird way that I spell it, is the way to do it. And I have a newsletter as well online that uh, comes out once a week for free and more if you subscribe at MikeKaplan.substack.com. Dot com and there I put I send a few jokes a few sometimes poems sometimes just silly fun things that I have created uh, and you can also find out what else is going on with me by doing that so those are some of the ways you can find me uh, and the online happenings of my life the online happenings of his <laughs> life <laughs> we all have online happenings in our life these days man it's impossible not to final question for you is kind of a fun one you have done uh you've appeared on so many shows uh all of the late nights i mean you you hit letterman you hit leno conan um james gordon like all all those guys um of all of the late night hosts i guess past and present who do you think is the most likely to go vegan. Do you think it's possible at some point we could see Letterman, Mr. Indiana, go go vegan? 
that's a that's a great question. I think I mean Letterman is a great place to start because like I don't know him very well personally. I'm you know grateful that I got to meet him several times on his show. I've actually just been catching up with uh, his new uh, That's My Time series on Netflix, which uh, a number of wonderful comedian friends of mine uh, have gotten to do. And so the thing about him that I feel like makes him seem like a likely candidate uh, is that he is constantly like reinventing himself and staying, uh, you know, staying up, keeping up with the times, being relevant, like being, you know, sort of having his finger on the pulse. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, perhaps he could have his finger on the pulse of his own hand and realize that uh, animals also have uh, pulses uh, pulsing through their own body. Uh, so I, I, I don't know for sure, but certainly Letterman's a possibility. Um, you know, Colbert is one of my favorites. I've I've not gotten to be on Colbert's show, but uh, I love him. And one, he is such a, a kind, compassionate person. And he also sometimes has like jokes about vegans, indicating to me that he is not yet vegan. But I feel like it's in there. It's in the mix. And the fact that like, as uh, you know, he's a Catholic. He he cares about living beings, and so I think that he uh, he's a good he's a good con he's a contender. He's a contender for being tender. He's a tender contender, <laughs> and uh, he's a contend he's a tender contender to be given up chicken tenders. And uh, I think I mean Conan is probably the show that I've uh, was a guest on the most. Uh, and actually, it was the first one. It was technically it was not Let Leno's Tonight Show. It was when I did the Tonight Show. It was in December two thousand nine, and it was uh, in Conan's Tonight Show limited run. Uh, so he was the first late night show I ever did, and uh, and he was always so kind and so friendly. Like he would always come and talk to me and my friends who were there visiting. And so I think that he's also you know. I, I feel like so many people were so kind, like James Corden was a kind man. Seth Meyers was a kind man. I feel like Seth Meyers, again, don't know him very well personally, but, you know, throughout the last several years when I was watching uh, the comedy that he's doing on his show, like he also clearly cares about people. And I feel like it's not so far a leap. Like if you look at the genetic similarity between, you know, many animals and people, you will be uh, astonished. And if you're eating them, horrified because like they're, you know, they, you know, they say in Us Magazine, the stars, they're just like us. It's like the animals, they're almost literally just like us. They're genetically nearly, we're almost the same genetics as a banana. We're surely that much closer to other humans so I, I mean i'm grateful for all the shows that i got to be on they all had many vegetables and fruits that i could eat in their <laughs> green rooms so i thank you i thank them for that but uh you know i i don't know if i know i mean perhaps a new uh like here's here's my hope the I think the first vegan late show host, I think this is possible. Uh, Nikki Glazer is a friend and she is a fantastic comedian. Uh, I believe she has a new uh, HBO special coming out this month and she's fantastic and she is vegan and she started talking about it at least on her on her podcast on her radio show and so i feel like she 
is like I poised to be potentially the first vegan talk show host. So uh, everyone else out there, all the Jimmys, uh, get with it. You know, like get you don't you don't want to be lagging behind. But uh, yeah, so I guess the short answer. Uh, that I'll give after the extended answer, which is I'm going to do, I've been working on a character uh, and also a real being in my life, a real way of being. And that character is can answer any question accurately and I can answer any question accurately. And so to, to truly answer this question the most accurately possible, uh, which late night host is it going to be? The answer is I don't know. Honest answer. Honest answer. I do my best. I go back though. I, the, we'll end with this. Like I would just love Letterman for one simple reason: the fact that he is a IndyCar owner, right? I would love to see one of his drivers win the Indy 500. They've got this ritual where they douse themselves in milk after the race. The winner does. How great would it be to see somebody with like two cartons of almond breeze just like dumping it on themselves, right? Like I would go so giddy for that. Oh, that would be beautiful. And also, I would I would add it would be wonderful if it was like uh, recently expired, you know, like thrown out by the supermarket. Be like it would be unsafe to eat this, but feel free to dunk it on your head. Uh, feel free to slather yourself in it. Just keep this uh, rotten, uh, rotten only because it's now gone bad because we don't want to waste any good almond breeze that could be send send kegs of almond and breeze to those who lack it and <laughs> uh and take the slightly uh, irregular dollar store almond breeze and dunk it all over david letterman's indy 500 head there you go yeah just watch out for the chunks they don't go in your eye <laughs> so <laughs> mike kaplan you are a dream to talk to my friend we've got links to your podcast your website all of the uh, social media channels all of that right now is in the description or in the episode notes my friend thank you so much for the laughs uh thank you for the laughs it has been a great pleasure and an honor thanks so much Funny dude, absolutely loved that conversation. And, you know, he liked the idea of the Fermenter being this pro wrestling character so much that a few days after our interview, I get a text message on my phone, look at it, it's from Mike, and there's this picture of him wearing the Mexican-style lucha wrestling mask. He's wearing a full suit as well. He's flexing his muscles for the camera, and right across the top of the picture in big, bold, carnival-style lettering is the Fermenter. <laughs> I mean, this thing is weird to say the least, but I dig it. And if you want to get a laugh, you can check out the picture of it right now. I've posted it on my Instagram, at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And who knows, maybe we'll see him at SummerSlam this weekend. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe he can team up with Becky Lynch. And Becky is one of the top women in WWE. I'm pretty sure she also eats a plant-based diet. So let those two work their magic together in the ring. I guarantee you that is a pay-per-view worth buying for sure. Uh, yeah, I know. It's quirky and it's dorky and it's all of those things. But you know what? That's also me. And I think that it's okay to admit that vegans can be a quirky bunch sometimes. We all have our quirks, right? 
it kind of comes with the territory when you buck the trend. And anyone who's eating an exclusively plant-based diet is doing that. You're stepping way outside of the traditional box with something as fundamental as what it is that you're eating, something as fundamental as food. So why wouldn't you be marching to the beat of your own drum with other things in your life as well? <laughs> Makes sense. Also, it makes sense to keep this one short today since we've gone long with this double dose of interviews. So let's just go ahead and take it home. Don't forget to check out Dr. Kaliova's fullest of tips on One Green Planet. The link is in the episode notes. And also, if you enjoyed the comedic stylings of Mike Kaplan, the vegan comedian, subscribe to his podcast, Broccoli and Ice Cream, and also his Substack. Don't forget to check him out at the Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis this week as well. Support the man making the world a healthier place by making it laugh. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Mike Kaplan and Dr. Kaliova for helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.